Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson, and this is the second in a series of episodes on the housing affordability crisis. One of the topics I really wanted to cover for this episode is on missing middle housing and exclusionary zoning. Last December, the Toronto Region Board of Trade released a report urging the province to create opportunities for missing middle housing, such as triplexes and fourplexes, in low-rise residential neighbourhoods. Their report came out around the same time the province assembled a task force to address the crisis, and many of the Board of Trade's recommendations on missing middle are repeated in the province's final task force report. So I was really delighted to interview Craig Rutan the Board of Trade's Policy Director for Energy, Environment, and Land Use, and author of their report. I interviewed him on February 9th, 2022, just one day after the province released its task force report on housing affordability. So the timing for our interview could not have been better. Here's our conversation. So Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, let me let me just start off by saying that I am one of probably what more than a thousand um, folks who follow you on Twitter, and um, I find that there are two topics that you tend to tweet about uh, on a daily basis, if not you know a, a weekly basis. The first is topics related to missing middle. I mean, this is you're in the eye of the storm now. This is, you know, uh, this is uh, the week of February 9th. And the, the report from the province just came out um, that picked up a lot of um, the recommendations from the report that you penned. Um, so that's fine. But the second is your daily postings of your Wordle scores. <laughs> and, you know, I, I play it too. And I'm as addicted to it as the next person. Um, so tell me, why do you like it so much? Uh, you know, when I was a when I was a kid, I uh, I thought I might want to go into journalism in English was one of the other thing directions I was looking at. Um, and I yeah, I just find words and language fascinating. It, yeah, it's a it's a fun game. You know, it's fun to to see other people's scores. Sometimes I, I take a glimpse at uh, Twitter and scroll through first and see uh, you know how tricky this one might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, today's was pretty tricky. Actually, yesterday's was too. Right? Yeah, really. That American spelling just just right. gets you sometimes. Yeah, um, no, it is really. It's. I mean, it's a fad right now, and I I, I share my scores with a bunch of friends, so I, I really do enjoy it. You know, but what is interesting is that just yesterday, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing put out a um, a kind of a media release on LinkedIn, maybe through other platforms. I saw it on LinkedIn, and it was. Um, they use the Wordle template, the Wordle kind of format um, to promote their new uh, report that they, they released just yesterday on, um, on the, the task force report. And they, they use the same kind of, you know, green letters and gray letters and, and uh, yellow letters. And they use the following six words with all with five letters, of course. And it was uh, fewer extra steps helps build homes. I thought that was, that was pretty uh, pretty crafty. Anyhow, a nice segue into uh, the, what we're going to get into. And um, 
when I, you know, when I'm thinking about the Toronto Region Board of Trade, I, I think about an organization um, whose mandate is to promote the economic well-being of the city, the city region, to help promote businesses. Um, certainly thinking about the downtown core and the businesses that have suffered over the course of this pandemic. Um, so I, I want you to explain to me the connection between this topic of housing affordability and missing middle and the mandate of the Board of Trade. Why was it important for the Board of Trade to do this study? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about the board is that it takes a broad view of what makes uh, a city or a region good for business. And it's not just about you know regulations and tax rates. It's about all of that connective tissue that makes for a great city. Um, because businesses need workers, workers need places to live, uh, and cities rely on that vibrancy. So from the Board of Trade's perspective, you know, we first got into the housing file five or six years ago when we heard from young professionals who were being priced out of the city. And uh, that, that challenge and concern has only grown over the last number of years, you know, ranging mm -hmm. to essential workers. And now really it's touching everyone's life. And so... Uh, you know, we, we come at it from an economic perspective and from an understanding of the needs of workers and, and what challenges they're facing. And, uh, and ultimately, that's what led us to wanting to champion this solution as something that really felt like uh, a no brainer that, again, there's no silver bullets in the housing file, I wish there were, but uh, something that could make a, a really substantial difference. Well, let me ask, I saw somewhere, I'm not sure if it was your report or a a companion report about the economic cost to the city uh, for not addressing it would is somewhere in the six to eight billion dollar range. Is that is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, right. That that comes from a report we did with uh, Wood Green released last summer. So how how was that calculated? Yeah, we uh, we looked at that. We had uh, Prism Economics take a, a look at trying to calculate that, and that put together four main buckets of cost. Uh, the first one was around the uh, salary premiums that some businesses were forced to pay to uh, to have their workers uh, to be able to for their workers to be able to live in the city. That's about twelve percent over what they might need to pay somewhere else in the province. Uh, one of the other big categories was around the hiring and retention costs for companies to uh, you know to deal with the increased turnover that they were facing because of housing being a main driver of forcing people out of the city. And one of the other buckets was around the cost that employees themselves faced from longer commutes and uh, and absenteeism do related to that. So you know when you when you add all of those pieces up together, they're still just a piece of the pie. You know, there's a lot of other costs we weren't able to calculate, but just starting from that, it I think helps to put an idea on the the impact that it's having right now and you know the the fact that the status quo is costing our economy and that you know, some some changes in new policy and programs might cost some extra money, but it it's worth it to help offset these other economic costs that we're facing. Hmm. Okay. So today is February 9th. I mentioned it earlier, and it's just two days ago you gave an overview presentation of your report at the ULI Toronto virtual event on exclusionary zoning. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners probably already know what Missing Middle is, but just so that we're on the same page, I, I would like you to provide a summary of what we mean by Missing Middle housing. Yeah, Missing Middle is sometimes referred to as gentle density, 
And it's everything in between a single family house, whether that's detached or semi-detached, and a mid-rise building. Controversially, the task force defined mid-rise as, uh, as missing middle. I discovered that. And I was going to ask you that, but we can get into that in a sec. But yes. Yeah. But yeah, so we, we talk about it being duplexes, triplexes, walk-up apartment buildings, uh, sort of a built form that would blend in pretty well into a lot of residential neighborhoods. Okay. And that, we're talking about the residential neighborhoods in the in the city of Toronto, at least, being that yellow belt area, right? That's um, do you is that so? You want to just just so we understand the term that was uh, coined by Gil Meslin a number of years ago. Um, yellow belt is the area in the official plan amendment that is kind of the stable neighborhoods. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, the the capital N neighborhoods that uh, you know out of the the land that's zoned for residential in Toronto, seventy percent of it is zoned to only allow those detached or semi-detached houses, then it excludes all of that missing middle. Okay. And and the missing middle uh, typology, it's not as if it would be uh, a, a new thing for a lot of the neighborhoods. I mean, I live in one of these yellow belt neighborhoods and directly across the street, we I have the there's a, a triplex, the Toronto Special, as they as it's called, um, fits in nicely in the neighborhood. You wouldn't even know it's a triplex. Um, so there's it's not as if, there's you're suggesting any kind of typology that would be fundamentally different than what we may see in in some parts of the yellow belt is that correct yeah that that's absolutely correct um i actually heard an interesting stat from the city of toronto the other day that 30 percent of torontonians live in missing middle housing right now okay uh, but last year only one percent of the housing that was approved uh to be newly built was missing middle uh, so it's a, a form that exists often in the large or in the old city of Toronto, uh, but uh, is almost impossible to build new these days. These days. So, OK, the the, the province's task force report, I, I think we do need to get some clarification here because they did say uh, page nine, of the report missing middle as mid, is defined as a mid rise condo or rental built rental housing, smaller houses on subdivided lots or in laneways and other additional units in existing houses. So that does sound a bit different from uh, how you have defined it. Um, why, why is the definition different, do you think? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I, if I were to, to try and see it through their eyes, I think both of those types of buildings are largely missing or a little, you know, are probably the the range of buildings that are the most difficult to build these days and that you see the the fewest applications going in for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I, I mean, they're not, and if you look at the report, some of the recommendations, they have a lot around ending exclusionary zoning and mm -hmm. permitting what the same thing that we called for, which was four units per lot. Um, they also talk about avenues or along transit routes, enabling six to 11 story buildings. So. Um, my hunch is that they wanted to capture all of those under that phrase missing middle, right. even if uh, a lot of uh, Twitterites and urbanists might disagree with the, the way they're using that phrase. Yeah, I started noticing and I guess that's I guess we're going to we're on a path, at least in the foreseeable future, for a little bit of confusion because some people take your definition. That's how I always interpret it. And there's some wonderful illustrations that often support that. And now we have a, a kind of a broader definition. But Nevertheless, there there's a real thrust uh, uh, to make make a difference. Um, 
in a perfect world then um, where your missing middle type, we're talking what you had, not with the province, but this, this sort of the, the, the lower intense form. Um, if those missing middle type houses get built, um, have you have you guys figured out how many more units in the city of Toronto could be added over and above what would be permitted under the current policy regime? Yeah, uh, we definitely don't have the 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 total number, but I uh, some colleagues at the board who preceded me uh, did one calculation that if even uh, one new home uh, were added per hectare of existing residential land, uh, in the city of Toronto, that would be 45,000 new homes. Uh, so if even one single family home became a duplex uh, per hectare in, in those neighborhoods, that's 45,000 new homes. So the potential is really high. Hmm. So this is all about then, it, again, you know, um, everyone's talking about a, a lack of supply. And so this is a, a means to add to that supply. And presumably, if you have bigger supply, then then there's a greater range of um, price points. Is that is that the uh, that's the the intent of the missing middle, just to create mm -hmm. a more variety and more supply of housing? Yeah, and that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really about creating those those options for people. And there's a lot of talk around the need for family size units and the need for more affordable units that people can purchase. And uh, you know, there's often a debate that gets. Uh, pulled up about saying, you know, are these units really, you know, affordable with that capital A? And mm -hmm. it's all relative. And if you're in a neighborhood where all the homes are selling for one and a half million dollars or, you know, in Midtown Toronto, maybe $3 million, uh, if you can go in and put in the triplex and uh, ideally reach a place where each of those units could be sold separately, uh, and that's dropped down to, you know, 700,000, 800,000, even a million dollars. That's not capital A affordable, but it's a heck of a lot more accessible to a lot more people than the, the current status quo. Okay. I want to get into that in a bit, but I uh, let's just talk a little bit about the barrier to why missing middle type housing is so difficult to get built. Um, maybe you want to expand a little bit about exclusionary zoning, and what, what that means. Yeah. So yeah, exclusionary zoning is really a term that's meant to, uh, that describes in, in large part, these existing neighborhoods that only permit the detached and semi-detached houses. And it's exclusionary for a number of reasons. It excludes any more diversity in terms of the built form. Uh, but in, in many of the, when many of these policies were put in place, it was also intentionally meant to exclude people uh, who weren't white and people of lower income. Uh, to try and maintain a, a desirable neighborhood, uh, in essence, uh, privatizing a neighborhood so that only those with uh, the right means and, and enough wealth could afford to live there without creating those more affordable options. Uh, and that's something that we've seen really widespread across North America. And uh, thankfully, in the last number of years, there's been a number of cities and states and, uh, you know, uh, places that are moving against that and starting to turn the tide on exclusionary zoning. Hmm. Okay, well then let's get into the meat of, of your report that came out in December of last year. Um, what exactly was uh, your report urging governments to do? Yeah, what when we looked at the problem and, and what had been going on in Ontario, we saw the city of Toronto has been making good progress and a, a lot of advocates uh, and think tanks and other organizations have been doing a lot of work really to 
urge the city of Toronto to reconsider its policies and make this housing possible. Uh, and it was getting traction and the city is, you know, making good progress on its expanding housing options and neighborhoods program to make this possible. But when we took a step back, we realized that leaving this just to the municipalities wasn't going to get us where we needed to be quickly enough. And when we you know, saw the rate of house price increases in the rest of the GTA, really far outside the GTA too over the last year, you know, more than 30% increases year over year in places like North Bay and London and uh, St. Thomas, uh, we realized that there was a need for a, a larger solution. So looking to examples from California, where they've had a very active state uh, trying to pass regulations that force municipalities to level up and actually build the housing that people need, uh, we thought that a similar approach could work here with the province uh, setting certain standards and uh, some binding requirements on municipalities to uh, to require them to allow this type of housing to be built. Okay, um, and so, but there was there was a number of components to the report, right? Um, uh, do you want to dig in a little bit more? I think you had four or five key recommendations. That's right. Yeah. So our, our first recommendation was to end exclusionary zoning and allow at least four units uh, on a lot, on a residential lot in any residential neighborhood. Uh, and we suggested that if it was close to a transit station, maybe that baseline could be higher, say eight units. Uh, we also called for the province to set certain standards. Uh, one of the lessons from California was that municipalities uh, would put in unreasonable setback requirements or uh, lot lot coverage uh, numbers that just made this housing impossible to build. So to try and get ahead of that, we called for the province to, to set those standards across the board. Uh, and we also called for it to have broad geographic reach to apply to all municipalities of 30,000 people or more, hmm. uh, because this problem is goes well beyond Toronto, goes well beyond just the big cities. Uh, and our fourth recommendation related to moderating development charges, that especially for these infill projects in neighborhoods that, you know, today the census data came out and showed how many neighborhoods have lost population in the last five years, um, a lot in Toronto, a lot in Mississauga and other cities too, mm -hmm. uh, that saying all of a sudden a, a triplex on, a, on an existing residential street doesn't really have that much impact in terms of, you know, new wastewater needs or park needs. You're just adding back people that the neighborhood used to have five years ago um, so that those development charges should be brought in line with a single family home. Uh, and then our final recommendation was around affordable ownership opportunities, because ultimately, if if these changes get passed and all it does is enable, you know, investors, small or large to purchase, to build and purchase new units, that's a, a partial win. You know, we're getting more homes built, we're getting more units available, but I don't think it achieves the full potential of it. So uh, one of the main things we called for was for the city to introduce uh, some stratification laws, sort of look to BC's example. It's in a way, it's a condo light approach so that uh, it's possible to subdivide and for people to purchase a floor of a triplex, for example, instead of needing to purchase the whole house. Hmm. Okay, I want to get into that uh, momentarily, but the the task force report, the government, the province's task force report that came out yesterday, um, they calling for um, 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. 
talking a lot about reducing or lem- eliminating a lot of the red tape. A lot of recommendations in there, a lot which are, are actually quite bold and aggressive. And I, I wanted to know what you think of the report. I know you've only had probably, you know, a day to look at it, but um, I, I can tell just on Twitter that you seem to be you seem to be responding quite positively. But how does it compare the recommendations that you uh, uh, you put out in, in December? Yeah, uh, I was over the moon when I saw and got the chance to read the task force report. Um, I, it is uh, a checklist of, I think, a lot of things that, you know, they set an ambitious target of 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years and then actually laid out the the things that would need to change to have a hope of hitting that target. So really delighted to see a lot of the recommendations in there and um, really happy to see the, of the things that we called for included, you know, ending exclusionary zoning, the four units per lot, uh, they went even further than us and didn't specify municipality size. So, you know, based off that recommendation, that could be anywhere in Ontario, which I think is really exciting. Um, they called for the province to establish binding standards to make sure municipalities don't frustrate it. Uh, they called to uh, uh, basically uh, eliminate or make nominal any development charges for infill up to 10 units, going even further than we did. Uh, and the only one that was that was sort of missing specifically was around the affordable ownership opportunities. They spoke to it uh, and laid out a couple ideas there. I would have loved to see some more suggestions on uh, on the the strata, you know, condo light model being implemented. Um, but overall, uh, really, really great package of recommendations. So this is a really, I mean, it, it's a really top down, you know, province top down uh, a, a presentation and and policy suggestion. Um, how do you think the municipalities are going to respond and how have they so far? Yeah, I mean, so far, you know, some some municipalities have been a little balanced about the recommendations. We've seen that from some councillors and even the, the mayor of Toronto. Um, some other mayors have come out maybe a bit more guns a-blazing. Um, so we'll see where more of them end up lining up. But I, I think the it, it, it is a change from where we're at right now. Right now, municipalities have a lot of free reign. The province sets some high-level guidance. Municipalities figure out how to uh, implement it. So it's a, it would be a step change from where we are now. Um, but I think, you know, not many people would say the status quo is working. Uh, and the people and and the people who would say that are some of the you know lucky beneficiaries who it's working for. And there's a lot of people that are being excluded by the the choices that are being made. So I think. You know, we've we've reached a stage where we need to, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with a bigger problem, you got to get a, a bigger uh, weapon or tool to deal with it. And that's, I think, the, the stage we find ourselves at now. Well, there's a lot of weapons being proposed, lots of tools. Uh, I think the proposal is to maybe, hopefully, have it legislated before the, the next provincial election. Um, mm-hmm. And it's hard to say whether all of these proposals, which are, are again, are pretty bold, uh, are all going to be legislated. I, I wanted to find out from you, um, um, you know, what if there was one or two items from the task force report that you think would have the greatest difference, impact, I suppose, on the affordability crisis, uh, what, what would you recommend to government as really picking out as the most important yeah, I would I would definitely recommend moving on ending exclusionary zoning and the the policies that are packaged as part of that. I think um, that has the the chance to have, if not the most immediate, probably the most wide ranging impact on affordability. 
and I think the other one that I'll pick out is the changing the way that uh, appeals are handled right now. Um, I think it makes a, the report makes a great point of laying out that anyone with 400 bucks can file an appeal with the Ontario Land Tribunal and tie up any project for months or even years. Uh, you know, whether it's in good faith or not, you know, regardless of whether we're talking about supportive housing or, or a big tower, and in either event, those are, are new homes that are badly needed. And uh, the report recommends raising the, the threshold and putting in some new criteria to uh, to require that, you know, these appeals are, are shown that they're in good faith and have some merit. Um, and so I think, you know, that's another place where, where these changes really, really could make a big difference. But wouldn't that raise the question about equitable opportunity to, to appeal? I mean, if, you know, we're, we're talking about going from $400, uh, to submit your appeal to several thousand dollars and maybe even, even higher. Um, which then sort of leans a little bit more in favor of, of um, a well-heeled developer or developer group. Um, it, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really is about changing the, the power balance and the dynamic. And right now, you know, it, all it takes is, is one, one neighbor, or someone who's not even a neighbor, to, to spend 400 bucks. And, you know, the report calls for $10,000. If you, if you break that down... Um, that actually works out to 25 people chipping in $400. So, you know, it, it, I think it, it's not as unreasonable as maybe it sounds on the face of it. Uh, and it just requires to say, if this is something you really care about and really believe in, then um, see if 25 other people agree with you and are willing to, to put their, their money where their mouth is. Um, but I, I think it, you know, when we look at what's happening right now with uh, how far projects are being held up, um, you know, the, the future residents who, who want to live in that neighborhood, who want to live in that site, you know, don't, don't really have that, that same opportunity to appeal. You know, they, they don't know exactly where they'll be living, but the ones who would end up occupying it in a number of years, uh, we're in a housing crisis, and I think we need to start acting like it. Okay, I want to get into a couple of challenges that, that I see, but uh, maybe you can help me. And the first is just, you talked a little bit about it before, but the financial, the possible financial barrier and, and um, with the, the housing format, we're talking duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. In my mind, um, when I think of them, and I think in your report, you had a, a photo of uh, the typical fourplex in Montreal, which is, you know, that's their kind of typology. And we look to that as, as the kind of um, uh, urban form we, we would like to see more of. Um, but to build, for an investor to build a triplex or a fourplex in, in the central part of the city, the Yellow Belt, I got to think that it would be, it would be pretty tough to, um, to carve out a profit in, in doing so. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, has there been any um, sort of financial, uh, you know, back of the envelope perform analysis of how, how this could work? What, how it could, how would uh, an investor or a small scale developer can be incentivized to buying a property in the city, um, you know, properties that are highly desirable, singles or semis, and then converting them into a into a triplex or or a fourplex. Mm -hmm. No, it, it's a great question, and um, where I see the real opportunity in market here is with those small scale you know, developers 
who are buying existing single family homes and renovating them into a much more expensive single family home uh, and then putting that back on the market and selling it. Um, or even the developers who are taking an existing triplex and renovating it into a gorgeous single family home. Um, and, and I think that the economics shouldn't be that much different in terms of the renovations that would be needed to either you know, maintain that existing triplex or to, to convert it into, into a duplex or triplex. And really it's the, the regulations that, that are standing in the way that just you know, mean it's not even a consideration for people to think about. Um, and I think, again, the, the idea of uh, that house being, you know, if you, maybe you buy it at 1.5, you do some renos and you could sell it at, at 2 million if it's a single family, you can turn it into a duplex or triplex and, you know, your, your cumulative, the cumulative sale of that, that property uh, would probably be higher than that $2 million, but each individual unit would be more affordable. So I think there is still that, that window for the finances to work. Um, it's not going to be on every plot of land. It's not going to be, you know, every project that happens, but I think by, by taking down the barriers, it makes it much more possible for, uh, for it to occur. So has that what you've been hearing, I guess, in doing this research that there is an appetite uh, by investors and small scale developers who, you know, recognizing the current state of the market, that they would see an opportunity there given, you know, high, you know, soaring prices, 1.5, 2 million for a typical semi, maybe more for a single, um, you know, and then having to invest probably half a million dollars or more to, to convert and then having you know to um, generate the rental income uh, to 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 cover the mortgage that that an investor would take on. Have you received any feedback from the industry on that? Yeah, I mean, so far what what we've heard from industry is is support for this as as one of the solution among others. Um, and and really, where I think that's that's being driven is from the the appetite of the market. You know, there's a lot of people who uh, who are looking for solutions like this, uh, who who want it to happen. Uh, I mean, my my personal experience, uh, my partner and I, uh, with another couple, bought a duplex last year. Um, uh, you know, we were specifically looking, interested in co-ownership, interested in uh, a multiplex. Um, the the house we bought uh, has laneway house potential as well. Um, so I think that. You know, when we think about uh, either younger people who want to live in a neighborhood in low-rise housing but can't afford a full single-family house, or for multi-generational living, someone who is, you know, uh, house rich, if you will, um, but is seeing their children and grandchildren being squeezed out, this creates opportunities for multi-generational living. Um, so I think the the appetite in the market is there, and when the the reins are taken off, that's what's really going to drive its adoption. Okay. Let me let me get into the other big challenge, and that really is the the, the nimbiest, um, not my backyard sentiment. Oh, I just read in the report yesterday the term banana, which I hadn't heard mm-hmm. before. It stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. I thought that was quite <laughs> funny. Um, and one mayor had commented that nimbyism has gone bananas, which is pretty funny. Um, so, uh, you, you know, nimbyism has is a well-known sentiment residents uh, firmly entrenched in their beliefs that there should really be no change to the the, the neighborhood character that that term which is um, enshrined in the current official plan 
um, not wanting to see, you know, impacts to traffic, um, shadow impacts, um, that's so that sort of thing. And, you know, actually on that um, ULI Toronto webinar the other day, um, Councillor Brad Bradford, who was on it, he used the term ferocious powers of the status quo. I thought that was quite the mm. statement. I mean, he was really reflecting on the, the, the influence that uh, uh, community groups, ratepayer associations have, um, the influence they have uh, on the local councillors, um, probably even uh, provincial um, MPPs. And so how, how can that be overcome? How can, how, how can that sentiment be overcome uh, in, you know, given the recommendations now that are, are coming forward? It's, it's, it's a bit of an affront to what um, these nimbiest uh, groups, if you want to call it that, or local ratepayer groups, um, you know, they, they really uh, would, would probably prefer not to see much change. So how, how can that be mm-hmm. overcome? Yeah, I mean, change is hard, right? Um, and I think there's there's a couple things that come to mind. There's there's a bit of empathy, there's a bit of a heart-centered approach, and then there's some cold hard facts. And and on the empathy, I mean, I, I get it. Change is hard, um, and people are used to and familiar with their neighborhood. Um, but I think there's room to appeal to them with sort of that, that emotional understanding of, uh, their children, their grandchildren, the the inability for an entire generation and more, uh, anyone who wasn't lucky enough to get into the housing market more than 10 years ago, um, being excluded. Um, and and then there's the there's the cold hard facts, you know, the census data today helps point it out and, and future rounds of releases, I think will make it abundantly clear. These existing neighborhoods you know, they talk about preserving neighborhood character, but the neighborhoods are changing. And the way they're changing is they're getting older and they're getting whiter and they're getting wealthier and there are fewer people living in them. Uh, and so is it really worth trying to preserve uh, what will eventually become a museum, a graveyard of multi-million dollar houses that no one can afford unless it's full of intergenerational wealth? Uh, and that, to me, is not the city we want to build. You know, the the city is growing, and we need to find ways to accommodate that change. And I don't think you can hive off seventy percent of the city's residential area and say this land's not for touching. Um, especially when there are so many solutions that can fit in well and that can really help revitalize the neighborhoods. I mean, it's it's so well put, and. Um... But I mean, eventually, you know, there will still be a, a resistance uh, to this um, suggested uh, strong change, um, and I I would imagine that that resistance would trickle its way to um, the local politician uh, or the the provincial politicians, and they're the ones that are ultimately going to be making the decision. Do you, do you get a sense that? Local and, and provincial politicians are ready to embrace this, despite the fact that a lot of the constituents that they represent uh, may have a different opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, it's a mixed bag, and I think I've we've seen leadership from some municipal politicians, like you know Anna Bailao in Toronto um, and others, and and the city's work has been progressing with support from a, a good number of councillors, and I'm hopeful when they bring their multiplex study forward for a vote in June, that, that enough councillors will vote for it to, for it to pass. Um, 
and I and I do see the the leadership happening at the the provincial level, and I think that's that's ultimately another reason why it, it's really time for the the province to be to be bold, to be courageous, and lead on this. Is that municipalities are you know municipal councillors they are dealing with those hyper local concerns and dealing with the you know the squeakiest wheels and the existing residents' associations the most closely. Um, who are the the most entrenched defenders and beneficiaries of the status quo? Um, and the province gets a chance to look at the bigger picture and think, you know, not just about what the people on this existing street think, but about the, you know, tens of thousands and millions of residents that are moving to uh, to the cities, to the province, the need for our economy to function, and the the need for these solutions to come packaged together. So, I mean, so far, I've seen and heard really encouraging things from each of the provincial parties. Uh, and I think the the consensus is is starting to grow about the need for bold action like this. And, um, you know, the Board of Trade and YIMBY groups and, and other ones are going to be there applauding it as the right thing to do for our, for our communities and for our economy. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think, though, um, this is a real push. I mean, it's it's about having that dialogue. It's about you know politicians looking at the big picture and making that decision to pass legislation that is 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 quite um, quite aggressive compared to what we have seen before. Um, will it be worth it for the policy? I mean, are they going to look at this and say, is this worth my potential political capital that that I've invested? Um, and you've talked a little bit about this earlier in our discussion, but ultimately, is this going to get the province what they're seeking um, in the face of uh, disruption to uh, local residents associations? Yeah, I mean, like, fair question, right? This is this is going to rock the boat a little bit, um, but I think the in the in perhaps a similar way to what we're seeing with the trucker convoy in Ottawa. Um, despite great visuals and a decent amount of noise, it is not representative of the majority. Um, ORIA, the Ontario Real Estate Association, did a did a poll and found that uh, uh, you know 78% of Ontarians support minimum zoning in urban areas to encourage more homes. So there is, I think, a lot of popular support out there. And this is a housing crisis that isn't just affecting Toronto. It's affecting Tilsonburg, it's affecting Timmins, it's affecting, you know, small towns and large cities and growing cities across the entire province. And people are are concerned and worried and are demanding action. And I think this is a solution that the, the government can very credibly say is is something that is going to help address that. Uh, and so I I do think the window is there and, you know, it's not going to be... Uh, you know, it's not going to be slam dunk. It's not going to be uh, full unanimity in support of the changes. Um, but I think there are going to be a lot of very uh, grateful and appreciative people um, that these necessary changes are being made. Exciting times ahead uh, in the next few months leading up to the election. It will be really interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, I know your your excitement is palpable from the, the tweets I can see. And um uh, in addition to your Wordle scores, um, 
Uh, this has been really good, Craig, and uh, I'm so glad I caught you in in uh, this week where everything is sort of percolated to the top. You're you're in kind of the eye of the storm right now, and maybe maybe we'll have a follow up call uh, this time next year or or, or sooner. Uh, but it's been really really interesting uh, to watch how, how this has unfolded. So thanks again for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for speaking with me, Jeremy, and and agreed. We're uh... Living in very exciting times, and hopefully we can have that uh, that celebration once uh, legislation passes and we're making good strides to you know, making this possible all across the province. Okay, thanks so much.